All right, we're so grateful for the people who are on the front lines with the Afghan families. Another 180 members of Calvary have been on the front lines with fire victims in the Marshall Fund, and uh, you've asked for resources. We've helped you. You've been with families. 180 different people were recipients of the Marshall Fire Fund. I love that. It It is... Uh, well aligned with the text that we're going to look at this morning in the book of James. If you have your Bible, I want you to open with me to James chapter 2. If you have your journal, it's uh, James chapter 2. Okay. God's building his church, and the people that you saw on the platform this morning are changing the world, really. Changing the world one family at a time, one person at a time. That's what the gospel does. That's what the good deeds of living out a life in Jesus does. It changes the world. The world's in trouble. The world has problems. And the only answer to the world's problems is God working through his church, at least most significantly. There are political solutions, some, educational solutions, some, but the hope of the world is Jesus. To one person at a time who hears the gospel and believes that there is a God and their lives are changed and transformed. And the entrance to do that is through the truth that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then we walk in them, and the world can hear the message, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's why we do what we do. It's cool to be a part of a church that cares about people. We can't be selfish. Church is a place where we tend to like what we like and then get selfish about it. That's not the spirit of Jesus. So we, we love what's happening here. We want it to be the DNA of who we are as a church, congregation, and all of us individually. We, we love other people. We have our eyes on them because our faith in Jesus is real. Uh, there's so many things I want to say this morning that have nothing to do with my message because I've, I've, this has been a tough season for so many reasons. So for a, a brief minute, can I go off script? Um, several people in our church have died in the last month and a half. Um, it's been an impact to us. 95, 95, 92, mid-80s. And I, I just want everybody to be paying attention. We're, we're watching that, and it is a grief to us to lose people we love and have been a part here. But something else is happening. It's like there's a sector that's been really important in our church that are graduated, and, and they're gone. And there needs to be um, people... I'm going to say 
my age, <laughs> who are now thinking of what's, what's my place for the next 20 years, you know? Who's, who's going to graduate into the sages of our church? The prayers. You know, some of these saints who have left us built the church, literally. And uh, they need to be backfilled by people who say, this church is the Lord's, and he's got a work to do. And those of us who are my age, I really mean that. We need to start looking at 60 to 85, if God gives us that many years, and say, what will we do to help the next generation come up? Um, I don't know. You receive that? Okay, so let's pray about what, what's our role to do that. Wally Schelke, um, 95 years old, went to be with the Lord. We had his service yesterday. It was a ball because Wally was a hero of the faith here. He attended for 70 years. Think about that. You guys aren't even 70 <laughs> down here. And Wally, Wally literally put the sheetrock up here, and uh, we're, we're going to miss him here because he was a great contributor, and he was a great encourager. He, he just encouraged people, and he encouraged the work here. Um, he once said, I heard yesterday in a little story, that I, I don't know why everybody's all upset about the music. Okay, tell me more, Wally. <laughs> tell me more about it. I, I don't know why everybody's upset about the music. This is my church. This is where I came to faith. I'm, I'm never giving up on my church. I hate that he's not here. I, I, I love that attitude. Because what God wants to do in a church like ours, not just ours, but a church like ours, is that his people would grow spiritually. We become really committed to knowing that Jesus is who he says he is and he's worth following. And then to go out into all the world and love the world, like you saw this morning, love the least, love the hurting. This text that we're looking at this morning is about paying attention as a church to the people in the margins, people on the fringes, and being careful not to be haughty about paying attention to people who are hoity-toity. But paying attention to people around us who are hurting and in need. It's a really good time for us to look at this text. So let me begin preaching, okay? In James chapter 2, the very first verse opens this way. My brothers, so it's family, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
we have to back up in our minds to what we've already looked at over the last couple weeks. What James is saying is something we all need to hear this morning. You can say you have faith, but in a sense, you better be able to back it up with your life. That's really the point. You say you know Jesus. A lot of people can say they know Jesus, but are the marks and evidences of really having a genuine faith in Christ evident in your life? So at the end of chapter one, there were several, three that were given, and then this is the next one. So let's back up and verse 26 of James chapter one, if anyone thinks you're religious, doesn't bridle your tongue. Your speech is an indicator of what's going on in your heart. You're deceived, and your religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, people in affliction, and then to keep yourself unspotted from the world. So there's three. If you think you have religion, it should show up in the way you speak. If you think you have religion, it should show up in your compassion for those who are hurting. And if you think you're religious, you should be able to separate your life from the things of this world, which are anti-God and anti-Christ. And the next phrase is, don't show partiality. I, I think this is another evidence that your faith is real. Don't show partiality. As you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus. So I circled in my journal from chapter 1, verse 26, religion, as it shows up three times. Religion, religion pure and undefiled. And then hold the faith of our Lord Jesus. I think what he's saying is this. You have religion? You have pure religion? You hold faith in the Lord Jesus? These are just synonymously used, a little bit nuanced and different, but he's questioning, you have a genuine religion. You have a genuine faith. Now, religion is the external manifestation of the inward belief, but he's underscoring that you have a faith in Jesus. And so, show no partiality. He's going to illustrate it for us, but he is talking to brothers, people who, who say that they really are believers. And the reason that we don't show partiality to other people and look at some, some way and others another way is because God doesn't do that. God is not partial to people. No one in here has ever impressed God because you had money or education or even skills. Because God would say, I did that. I gave you that. I'm the source of every good and perfect gift and blessing. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, this is what we read. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Let's read the last phrase together who is not partial and takes no bribe. You're not bargaining with God. 
He is not partial. He is impartial. And all of us are equal footing before him. Now, if we can go back to the verse, I want you to circle one other phrase from verse 1. It is the title that James gives, and this sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Don't show partiality as you hold on to your faith in our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why would he put that phrase in there? Why would he call Jesus in this moment the Lord of glory? It's because in the community of faith, the only one worthy of glory and attention is Jesus. So we say we are building a Christ-centered community of people because the only one that's singularly on a pedestal in this church is Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. And partiality really means to, um, to judge on the face of something. And so partiality is an external examination, an external appraisal of something without an assessment of the real person, their character, their attributes. It's a surface look, not a substance look. So we might be tempted to show partiality based on money or education or social status. And sometimes we want to show partiality with, as he's going to reflect, some really impure motives because we look at something that's admirable in another person, we might be tempted to give them more credit in the hope that we might get some reward for treating them in a certain way, and we want to ride on their coattails. But it seems that James is calling out the community because they may have been obsessing over the glory of certain people in the church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a church paying attention to a particular family in the church, person in the church, pastor in the church? Don't. We're all ruined sinners, saved by grace. Right? The community may have been obsessed with the glory of man, but James calls them to be obsessed with the Lord of glory. Pay attention to him. Now he illustrates it. He illustrates it in verse 2. For if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And there is an implied answer if you do that. And what's the answer? Yes, you have. You, you have become a judge, and your thoughts are evil. If you look at one person and say, hey, you, you're dressed nice. You should sit up here in the front row like you college students. <clears throat> I walked in this, you know, before in the turn and greet and looked at everybody in the cheap seats back in the way back. <laughs> look, he's, he's, he's saying something that seems unthinkable. Would we actually do that? Pay attention to how somebody looks and then give them better treatment. Uh, he's making a case. 
and, and here's three lines. This is the first line. Partiality toward people is incompatible with the character of Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. Don't you dare look at people in a certain way and treat them differently as you look at them. When we show favoritism, we set ourselves up as the judge, and we aren't. Stephen Larson is a pastor, and he said, if you please God, it doesn't matter whom you displease. And if you displease God, it doesn't matter whom you please. I like that. Look, we tend to look at people and make assessments right on the face. And I think that's, that's what we're being called out for. It was about 1998 when I preached this text, probably for the first time at Calvary Bible Church. Was anybody here in 1998? All right, so what I did is I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and I went to um, a makeup artist. And I got made up as a homeless beggar. Beard, dirt, everything. And I got dropped off at the end of the road in my gig at seven minutes to service. And I walked up the road, Calmia. And I came into the building having people coming to church. They came on time in that season. (laughs) And as they passed me, everybody's head turned and looked at me in 1998, and I walked in, and I walked over in this way, and I sat down over here, and a few people greeted me, and nobody knew except a couple people on the platform what I was doing, and... uh, When the turn and greet was over, a few people said hello to me. I left about 15 seconds of silence. And then I got up and I walked up on the platform. (laughs) And I preached in my regalia. (laughs) And I preached this passage. The best thing in the morning was Frank Goodman gave the usher $200 $200 to give to me while I was over there. And I, I, I gave it back. <laughs> but I was testing. How, how do we treat somebody? It was good. It was really good. It was like if somebody came in with shabby clothes, would we be drawn enough to them? to say. Jesus is the Lord of glory for you, as he is for me. That, that's the point. That's what he's making. We don't want to make distinctions in ourselves and say of one person that there's something and another isn't. And, and let's face it, the, the glory that we might give to a rich person or a well-educated person or a beautiful person is transitory and fleeting. 
Is it not? You want to know how fleeting human glory is? Just go to your 25-year high school reunion. (laughs) 40-year. I've been to my 40-year. It's the only one I've ever been to. It's like National Honor Scholars made really dumb choices that led to a hard life. And the star quarterback suffered from furniture disease. You don't know that? His chest fell into his drawers. I'm just saying, right? Every measure that we give to people that like, oh, we should face special attention there, that's fleeting. It's, it's going away. But the Lord of glory, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the almighty, the everlasting, Here's how Psalm 103 puts it about his enduring glory. As for man, his days are like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind passes over it, it's gone, and the place knows it no more. That's a sad assessment of human existence. It's one of the ways to think that we have a very, our life is like a vapor. But in contrast, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. God goes on and on and on. So can you just think how ludicrous it is to be in church and to put a man or a woman on a pedestal when God is in the room? No, no, we all wander in broken sinners. It doesn't matter your economics. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your status, your employment, or anything. We all come to this place to say we need Jesus. So he finishes up, and we have to move on. Um, If I can find where I was. Listen, brothers, verse 5. Has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Just makes a general statement about rich and poor. And... His statement is, has God not chosen the poor to be rich in faith? I think he's just simply staying a blanket generalization that people who are impoverished and on the fringes and on the outskirts have often been the ones whom God has chosen to have great faith in God, and their poverty has awakened in them a desire for something that they do not have, whereas the danger that has always been the lot for the wealthy 
is that they do not need God because they have all they need. It's why Paul said uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, charge the wealthy not to be haughty and to trust in the fleeting nature of riches. You're with me on that, right? The more we have, the more self-secure we think we are, and the less we think we need God. And it is simply James saying that the poor, are they not often the ones who call out to God because they have nothing else? And the answer is yes, that's right. And isn't the rich that often oppose you, oppress you, and throw you into court? And in this case, in that context, in that century, the answer would have been yes. I think in James's mind, it was probably the Sadducees. The Sadducees, who were the aristocrats in Jerusalem, remember this is just after the, the life of Jesus, and the Sadducees hated Christianity. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they were opposing this movement called the Christian faith, and they were probably the ones who were throwing the Christians into prison. So it's in James' mind that what, why are you propping up the wealthy thinking, oh, because they're wealthy, they have a special seat here. You know, there was time in the church that there'd be special seats for the wealthy, right? Remember that? Okay. Well, I suppose I should say in Boulder, Colorado, where there is a lot of wealth, we're thankful that the Bible says, does not say, there are no wealthy who know God. We just have to be careful. And as was mentioned a couple weeks ago, every one of us in the room actually are in a category of wealthy in the world. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the purpose. Why does God take the small things and use them? So no human would boast in the presence of the Lord and that everyone who does boast would boast in the Lord. See verse 1, hold faith in the Lord of glory. It's about Jesus, right? So that's where we are. First thing I would want you to take away from this morning's message is this, that favoritism is incompatible with the character of Jesus. Secondly, in verse 8, he changes gears a little bit, but he says favoritism is incompatible with the royal law of love. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor of yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. He's changing gears, and he's saying partiality doesn't fit with the the royal law. What's the royal law? It's the law given by the king. And it's summarized right here for us. Here it is. If, if you could distill all of the Bible into one sentence, it's, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then you're doing well. And partiality doesn't fit with that. If you show partiality, you're committing 
sin. So he goes right to the heart of it and says, to think of people based on their physical manifestation or their social or personal accomplishments is to sin against God and not treat them the way God treats them. This is what Jesus said. Um, I think given our time, I won't put them on the screen, but you would probably want to write them down. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. Remember the lawyer came to Jesus and said, you know, what's the greatest command? And this is what Jesus answered. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Second verse I would say you should write down in your journal is Romans chapter 13 and verses 8 through 10, where Paul said, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And he repeats it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. And on this command, these commands, everything in the Bible hangs. And he's going to elaborate on that in a moment. Basically, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Everybody said, duh. Yeah, that's true. It's like, yeah, if you murder, you break the law. Or if you commit adultery, you break the law. And his point is, or if you show partiality and you prefer one person over another, you've broken the law. Now, if you're new here, what this is intended to do is to show what is real and true of every one of us. And that is that we are all law breakers. Every law breaker, raise your hand. Yeah, we have all, we've all transgressed the moral law of God in one way or another. And if you don't think you have, um, ask God to show you. But we have. And that's his point. His point is that we all have broken the law. Verse 10, but whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all. You break it in one point, you are a lawbreaker. That's his point. And that is intended, I think, to create a, ah, uh, which verse 12 relieves. And verse 12 says, so speak and act as those who have been judged under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? I think it's the gospel. I think it's the, the gospel that frees us from condemnation. It frees us from, if it's the law of liberty, it frees us from bondage to sin. You have been freed from the law of condemnation by the law of liberty. So he builds this case that really what he wants the church to do is to be living out, love your neighbor as yourself, and knowing that if you break the law in any place, you're guilty of being a lawbreaker. But the relief of that is verse 12, that 
we've been judged by the law of liberty. I think what he's saying is that partiality is a serious sin, and so here's this final warning. Live as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, as those who have been, through the gospel, freed from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, um, saved by Christ's grace in your life and his credited righteousness. You've been freed from all of the condemning weight of God's judgment for being a lawbreaker because the law of liberty in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's true. And then verse 13 says, but judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But that's not you. Because you've been freed from the law of liberty. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Who's that? That's the one who does not know mercy, who is under condemnation. And if, if you're going to stand before God without the law of liberty of the grace of Jesus as your only shield before him, you're going to have judgment. This is sober. So 12 says, live in a way that reflects that you have been freed from the law of sin by the law of liberty in Christ Jesus, because if you don't, judgment is going to be without mercy to anybody who has not shown mercy, but that, of course, is not you, because you have been shown mercy from God, and therefore you're going to what? You're going to demonstrate mercy to others as a reflection of what really has transpired in your heart, reinforcing that, do you say you are a Christian saved by grace through Jesus and you know him? Yes. Then, so speak and live as those who have been freed from sin to experience God's mercy and then share his mercy even with the one who comes in in shabby clothes or wherever they are. You get the, get the flow of the argument? Favoritism towards someone is incompatible with the character of Jesus. It's incompatible with the law that says, love your neighbor. And it's incompatible with the mercy that we have received. So we just say, Lord, help us to have eyes to see the world as you see it. We have a, a, a dream for Calvary that we would be people who love our neighbor. That the church is released into the community to say, where does the love of God want to take me with the neighbor we are? So earlier, you know, loving the, the, the immigrant loving the displaced family in the Marshall Fire, loving your neighbor. It, it's not for us to do, it's for me to do, and you to do, and all of us to do. And this is the verification that what mercy we've received is being translated into the way we live. Everybody get that? So what are we going to do about that? Can't just go home, forget about it, we have to ask ourselves the question, Lord, who do you want me to love?
Where do, you want my lo- where do you want the love of God to flow through me into the world that I am right now? Mercy to others is really a signal that God's grace has come to me. Okay, a lot of parts to this. Does anybody want to ask a question before we close? I'd like to pray for us. This is a high call, but it's what makes the church the hope of the world, everybody. This is why the church can make a difference in the world is because we, we see people on equal footing before the foot of the cross, and we love them. I pray, Father, that you will expunge from our heart any discriminatory judgment against other human beings created in your image. And that it would never be true of our lives that we would treat people differently because of what is on the surface. But that you would give us a love for those who cross our path and need your grace. I thank you that your mercy has come to us. We are broken sinners who have received your mercy. And therefore, we pray that your mercy will flow through us to everyone around us. Thank you for the privilege of genuinely knowing the Lord of glory. And we pray that he alone will be glorified in this church and glorified as we go into the world. Please release all of us to see our place in the world, to love all people of every status as you bring them into our path. Pray this for your glory and the advance of your purposes in the world. And everybody said, amen.